Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Joy Harjo is a celebrated, multifaceted artist. She served as the 23rd U.S. Poet Laureate and was the first Native American to hold that honor. She's the author of 10 books of poetry and produced seven award-winning music albums. And her life as an artist began as a child at one of the federal Indian boarding schools that, for so many Indigenous families, were a site of pain and trauma. For Joy Harjo, that history is more complicated. I spoke with her recently about her early years and about her newest project. She's just released an adaptation of her famous poem, Remember, as a children's book. The poem was one of the first Joy ever wrote almost 40 years ago, and it invites readers to pause and reflect on the wonder of the world around us and our place in it. So I began my conversation with Joy Harjo by asking her to read the poem. This is the poem, Remember. Remember the sky you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon, know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn, that is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, he is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them, listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind, remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember, you are all people, and all people are you. Remember, you are this universe, and this universe is you. Remember, all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember. It's really wonderful. In in your author's note for the new book, you share that uh, in the Muscogee Nation tradition, you have poems for nearly everything. And you write that, quote, to speak or to sing aloud or on paper is a powerful way to bring your thoughts, your yearnings, the most secret dreams of your heart into existence. So what does this poem bring into existence for you? Well, it brings into existence old knowledge that's always been here. I think if you go to the roots of cultures of, you know, we all have roots to cultures indigenous to either the Americas or Africa or Europe or Asia, etc. 
you know, the basic tenets are often pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. And this poem came about when I was just starting to write, actually. I was, I had no plans to become a poet. And I was on my way to being a painter and artist like some family members. And I, I came to realize, and this poem is part of that, because the poem is a kind of teaching for me, too, as a very young poet coming up, is that this was important. This was at the root of you know, these words and these admonishments and these reminders are reminding me and us um, sort of who we are and that we're part of everything mm. and, and also about the power of language to call into being. I'm grateful to the poem and I, I realize it came into existence to not just help me, but to help many others. I think it's probably hard for people to understand you at a moment when you didn't know you were going to be a poet. (laughs) Um, Tell me more about that, about how you came to that realization. Yes. Yes. It was a surprise to me because I was always the person that sat in the back and didn't say anything. I was (laughs) not a word person. I loved Mm. language. I loved sound. I loved music. But, you know, at career day, I don't even think we had career day, but we, we certainly were aware of careers. Being a poet <laughs> doesn't Getting really... On the list. <laughs> you never, you never... <laughs> or a saxophone player, and, you know, that's usually not on a list of, you know, how to make a living in this world. So I've come to realize, I mean, it, the way it happened is that I was a studio art major at the University of New Mexico, but also very involved in Native rights especially for our communities, and worked with uh, Kiva Club, the Native Student Club, with various local communities and helping them with with their various um, challenges with, say, the uranium companies and coal companies and, and other things that we were dealing with as Native peoples in the 70s. And I came of age, so to speak, at a time when you know, there was, it's been called the Native American Renaissance or mm-hmm. literary Renaissance, but I was right there when Leslie Marmon Silco was writing and Simon Ortiz, the, the Acoma poet, and James Welch from Blackfeet, and Ann Waldman, um, Ishmael Reed came to town, and, you know, he was very strong and, you know, asking the question and helping provide answers is like, what is American literature? And you know, if we're all Americans, why aren't we included? Mm-hmm. And I just started writing. I realized later, I came to realize that I needed to learn how to speak. And I took something on that I had no idea that I had signed up for, <laughs> was this thing called poetry. But what it allowed me to do is to um, sort of speak with images. And what's always been exciting for me is learning something I didn't know and putting things together, it's like painting, in that I was painting with words and with sensibility and also about what was going on with our people and in our community. And I didn't grow up reading literature like that. Mm. But when I heard these other Native people and I thought, wow, you can construct with language, you can construct these like little word paintings that are are from us, not from some guy in England declaiming poetry or somebody (laughs) in the northeast part of the United States. You know, and I love poetry. And I loved a lot of that poetry, but it always felt so far away. Yeah, declaiming poetry. Yes, declaiming, (laughs) right. (laughs) 
Joy's memoir, Crazy Brave, which was published in 2013, she describes the harrowing tale of her childhood and her young adult life. She has overcome a lot. Familial abuse, teen pregnancy, abusive exes and addictions. And so, as a young person, when she discovered one of the federally run boarding schools that have been a source of trauma for so many Native children, she actually chose to attend. That's because, first off, it got her out of a really bad situation at home, but also because it was an art school. I was a student, a high school student, at the Institute of American Indian Arts when it was a Bureau of Indian Affairs school of 8th to 12th grade and two years postgraduate. Well, I first read Native poetry there. The, um, oh, what was his name? I can see him right now. Vincent Price used to... Uh, give money to for a uh, Native student poetry anthology every year. And that's where I first read Native mm. poetry, students. And a lot of the students wrote poetry. I even, I think, got kicked out of my English class because I was writing uh, limericks about the horrible class we were in <laughs> and got put in my own class. <laughs> but that's where I first heard Native poetry. And at that time, at the Institute of American Indian Arts, we were also kind of, uh, were the point of emergence, our class, and in that time of IAIA and Indian art history, it was a sort of like a so-called renaissance. I don't know that that word exactly fits, mm. but because we weren't emerging, we'd been here, mm. but it was a certain wave. Every generation has a kind of wave. Uh, they make a wave of understanding and art. So our generation, I guess, was a little noisy with our wave, <laughs> you know, with our wave of art making. And so that led to, that also led to the poetry. It's Notes from America. We'll be right back. Carnegie Hall is one of the most famous concert venues in the world. The first time I walked on the stage, I felt like my feet were moving, but they were not touching the floor. Join us for If This Hall Could Talk, a new podcast that explores the history of this iconic landmark through the unique items in its archives. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and together we'll explore how the past shaped the culture we live in today. Listen to If This Hall Could Talk wherever you get podcasts. The U.S. Department of Interior is now led by Secretary Deb Holland, who's the first Native person to hold that position. And she's launched a series of listening sessions in Native communities around the country to talk openly for the first time about the abuse that took place at these federally run boarding schools like the one you attended. We've heard a lot about the trauma people still carry from that experience but you're describing something quite different, something positive, at least in part. What do you think was different for you about your experience? You know, that school that I went to had a history. It was, it's, it's gone back to being Santa Fe Indian School and the Institute of American Indian Arts is now a college with even uh, two tracks of MFA, you know, for MFA degrees, you know, run by Native people and so on. But at that time, it was a Bureau of Indian Affairs school, but it was a unusual school because it came about through the vision of Lloyd Kivanew, who saw 
you know, how important education, you know, the arts were, mm. you know, how um, so many Native students were talented in art. And so we had the old Bureau of Indian Affairs system in place where, you know, my detail, a lot of military language, my detail was getting up at 5 a.m. and helping in the kitchen, which I didn't mind because I had access to food. <laughs> I had access to food. Right. But we all, but that was part of that system is that we all had to work. Hmm. We all had work. Another part of it, though, was the, um, we weren't allowed to speak our native languages and were punished for that. That was part of it. The cool part was that what was different is that our education was primarily in the arts. And we had some of the finest artists in the country, mostly predominantly native artists, but also non-native artists. It was the first time I had native teachers. And they were producing, and a lot of them very famous and very well-known, at the height mm -hmm. of their careers, producing art that we got to watch the process, as well as teaching us. And that was, that was pretty profound. Mm -hmm. And I believe that something, there was a kind of a moment we're here we are, we're all coming together, young Native artists. So what does it mean? What does it take to be an artist or poet? It means that you watch and you listen beyond what everyone else is watching and listening to, to catch fresh ideas, to understand. You know, we're almost like, I think artists and poets, almost like the antenna, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, the antennas or the, the point people of culture. Yeah, yeah. And... So being there, that was quite incredible to be there with those teachers. Yeah. The academics were so-so, <laughs> and uh, that's why I got into trouble. I, I think I didn't think it was right. You know, the teacher brought in fourth grade readers for all of us in eleventh grade, and we had lives. We'd all seen a lot. A lot of us were there. We would have been home if we didn't have trouble. Right and you know, sent away to school. Yeah. So there was some of that old stuff in place. You know, like, I remember we went out to help a student. Uh, she was punished by having to clean the sidewalk with a toothbrush that ran probably about a half mile along the side Good of grief. the school. So we all went out to help her, and they, they said, you know, they wouldn't let us help her. So there were moments like that. And some of us could hear the kids that had been dragged away from their families not long before crying. Yeah. You know, there you could sometimes hear the children crying who had been there. And I wound up in a class by myself for English and was told to read I could read whatever I wanted. And most of the books were what people had donated in town. But in a classroom, and I later taught in this classroom, was the wall was ringed by stoves, stoves, so that a few years before us, the female students were taught how to cook and clean for people in town. Yeah. And those were still there. How to be And there servants. were still remnants of dairy. Yeah, and there were still remnants of dairy barns out back to teach the boys how to be dairy farmers when most of us were lactose intolerant, <laughs> you know? And, you know, I, and I have to say, Joe, I mean, you're describing things that I, it's hard for me to then see the positive side that you point to. But I, as I take it, you're saying, but the point is, despite all of that, you were able to be surrounded by artists. And, and that was an important moment for you as a consequence. 
Yes, because there's something about being, you know, we're wired a little differently, I think, <laughs> to be an artist. And it's uh, to be there together. And you can imagine the trouble we caused, too, together. <laughs> we had a, but was exciting. I mean, I think being there helped form some of the, the, the basics as I went out into the world as a, as a Native artist to have that community. And we're still a community. Yeah. You know, we still, we keep coming up together, you know, in all of the iterations and shifts in, in history and culture that we embody and that we've gone through since our time together there in the late 60s at the Institute of American Indian Arts and being in Santa Fe, too. We had some tremendous teachers there and mentors who um, really helped shape and form us and, and our friends, too. But it was also, you know, we also brought with us a lot of, you know, historical traumatic baggage. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't make it. But yes, the the Indian school, I'm, I'm glad that Deb Holland is doing that because, I mean, how does a country hill or how does a place hill except that these stories need to be told? They need to be listened to. That's part of it. They need to be heard. For her new children's book, Joy Harjo collaborated with artist Michaela Goat, who created illustrations to accompany the poem, Remember. Michaela, who is a member of the Slingit Nation, brought her own heritage to the project. There are images of a raven, which is essential to the Slingit creation story, that sweep across the pages of the book. They really help give across that we are in a sacred circle, that this life you know, and in a sacred circle, because this is a world of duality, there's the profane <laughs> running right alongside. But, you know, there's dark, there's light, and there's the beauty. And perhaps in each of us. Yes, every one of us, or we wouldn't be here. We could not exist in this atmosphere <laughs> if there wasn't, yeah. you know. When a young person finishes this book, what, what, what would you hope they would take away from it? Is, is, is that an idea? Yes, or what characterizes it all through here is the, are the animals and the people and the plants. I think if you look at each of the, the beautiful illustrations, you see everybody together. Yes, you have the young girl, the character, going through the book. But she exists with the plants, with the water, the ocean, and the uh, animals in the ocean, and the sun and the moon. That we're all in this story, we're all in this story together and we're part of it. We're an essential part of it. You know, mm -hmm. remember, you are this universe and this universe is you, that you have a place and so do the plants, you know, and so do the animals. And that's what I think is important. I think that's what is most important, perhaps, in the reading of this, mm -hmm. this book. Well, Joy Harder, thank you so much for making time to tell us more about yourself and more about this wonderful work. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Special thanks this week to our partners at KOSU in Oklahoma. We're working together on more episodes exploring the history of Indian boarding schools and the questions that history raises for right now. So stay tuned for more. 
Mixing and theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Miranda was our live engineer this week. Reporting, editing, and producing by Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Talk to you next time. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.